0: Certainly blessed once again to be able to be together today. We're thankful for your presence. Trust that as we look into God's Word today, we'll find things useful and helpful and encouraging. A couple of things I want to mention before I start on my study today. There's some things that every sermon has in common. Doesn't matter if we're talking about Christian living or doctrine or evangelism. Whatever the sermon is, within that sermon exists a warning. That warning's a, a message from God. And within the warning is a call to self examination. And that's a very difficult and challenging thing, particularly when we've got an issue. But the reason that's important is because that's the way we learn. It's how we find out about ourselves, how we figure out how to be closer to God. So as we consider... What I want to talk about today, I want us to be able to take a warning that we have from God's Word. And I want us to make that personal. And I want, to, want us to take it as a message from God. And here, here's the reason I want to talk about this today. It's not because I think we've got some huge problem. It's because I think we've got a really good deal here with our congregation. I think we have people that love the Lord, they want to serve God, they want to know the truth. We have a heart of evangelism, we want to spread the gospel. We have all of these good things going for us. And what I know about that is is that Satan doesn't like it. And he's going to do everything he can to keep us from having and being successful. And this is one of the ways that He's never going to quit. He's going to work on our personal relationships. And there's a built-in tension in when we think about relationships and our interaction with one another. And that's what I want to focus on today is not our interaction necessarily with people in the world, but with our interaction with one another. In this building the group of people that are part of God's family, and how we interact with each other, and how we minimize and overcome conflict. But that built-in tension is there because we have differences. We have different passions. We have different temptations. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses. All of those things are there. And then you throw Satan in the middle of that, and he's going to take all of that, and he's going to try to create problems for us. And we've got to take God's Word, and we've got to apply God's Word in our relationships so that we can overcome this conflict. And that we can manage conflict the way God wants us to. So we're going to start here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And as we think about the church at Corinth, I don't know that much about it other than what I read in Scripture, and they clearly had a lot of issues. And Paul addresses these issues and he tries to help them recognize that there's a better way. And he covers all of these different issues, and then he gets towards the end here of his second letter to them. And he says again, Do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? Do you understand what Paul's trying to communicate to them? Because he's giving them the truth from God's Word. And instead of being able to recognize that, what people were doing was they were blaming Paul for the message. They hated the messenger. Let's not hate the messenger. That's not going to help us. He says we speak before God in Christ. He's telling them, God's my judge. God's going to judge me for what I've wrote to you and what I've told you. Beloved, for your edification, we do all things, He says, for your edification. He's trying to build them up. He's trying to help them. He's trying to get them to a better place. Then He says this, for I fear. He knows about... Satan's devices, doesn't he? For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Now notice, lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, Backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. I, th- I think I'm not gonna spend a much of time defining all of these things. It's like I-, I don't even know remember what it was said about, but a guy said, Well, I don't know exactly what that is, but I know it when I see it. Now, the challenge is, I, I think we do know it when we see it in other people, but the question is, do we know it when we see it in the mirror? I do want to comment on tumults, because I, I wasn't sure what that was. It's confusion. Dissension, confusion, fights. This is not the way Christian people should interact with one another. So we consider that. We look at that. Then we recognize that as a warning, I hope. And I hope we can look into that and and insert ourselves into that and honestly answer the question, am I guilty? Do I do that? We need to stop. So as we look further into this idea of conflict, personal conflict, I want us to consider Romans chapter 14, and my first, first point this morning that I want to emphasize is that we should not have conflict and we should not argue over opinions. Everybody's got opinions, and it's okay to talk about opinions, I'm not suggesting otherwise, I'm talking about having a problem and having conflict over opinions. Paul couldn't be any clearer. Receive one who is weak in the faith, he says, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Now, I find a little bit of humor in that because that's kind of my attitude. But his point, we don't have a problem. We understand, I'm certain, that the problem here is that they lived in a land of idols and they were offering animals as idol worship, and the question was whether or not a Christian could go and take that meat that had been offered to an idol and eat that meat. And they were having a huge problem over that. And it was an opinion. It didn't matter whether they ate the meat or whether they didn't eat the meat. But they were having a conflict over that. And it was affecting the church. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And we do it, people! We have opinions about everything under the sun, and we despise our brother that has a different opinion if we're not really careful. And it ought not to be so. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant to his own master? He stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. Okay, so I want us to understand that we shouldn't have conflict over opinions, but when we do, it becomes sin. Having a different opinion is not sin. Creating a conflict, a tumult, whispering, backbiting, all of those things are sin. And when we do that because somebody has a different opinion, we've crossed a line. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And this is very difficult because I I'm, I'm passionate about my opinions, what I think. Be humble, he says. cannot affect our attitude toward one another. It must not. You know, I don't, I don't believe I have the verse in here, but the, the Scripture is very clear. We're to esteem others higher than ourselves. We need to be peaceful. We need to be of a mind to make peace, to spread peace, to have peace, not to build up our own opinion and ourselves by promoting our opinion. In James chapter 3, he says, But if you have bitter envying and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. You're lying to yourself. This wisdom, he says, does not descend from above. It doesn't come from God. Where does it come from? It's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first Peter is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, he says. Willing to yield. Full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we need to be able in our interactions with our brethren, to yield. Be willing to yield. And folks, if we can take what James here says here, and we can apply and behave like this, we can avoid most every problem that comes up. And I believe that should be our first goal. There's going to be tension. There's going to be conflict. But if we'll take these things and we'll be diligent about living this way, with this wisdom that comes from above, we can avoid conflict. We can avoid it. But it's still going to happen, isn't it? Because we're all flawed. So I want to take you to Matthew 18 now. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15, Jesus gives us what is a very simple, simple formula. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So it's a simple formula. But again, there's a lot of complications because we're human. But I want to go through this with you, because I believe there's four stages in what Jesus says to do here. And I believe all four of them are exceedingly important. And when you have a legitimate conflict, if you'll go through these stages in the order and in the way that Jesus says to do it, the conflict will get resolved. It truly will. But if we decide to do it some other way, It won't get resolved. I want to notice some things here. The first thing he says is, if your brother hurts your feelings... No, that's, that's not what it says, is, is it? Now, I understand hurt feelings are legitimate. But we need to be able to objectively evaluate what's happened. And if there's sin involved, then that's when we need to go. You need to go. By yourself. And you need to tell the person why you're there. And I will tell you, in my personal experience, I'm going to say somewhere close to 90% of issues get resolved right there. But if we never go, or if we go to somebody else, if we do all the things that we're tempted to do other than what Jesus said to do, the problem gets bigger, not smaller. If he hears you, he says, you have gained your brother. Is that our goal? Don't forget that. I I don't care what else I say today, I don't want you to forget this. We want to gain our brother. I hope but if he will not hear. Now again, this is extremely important. If you go to your brother, and they hear you, and confess their fault, and acknowledge and apologize, but you're not satisfied, Then the problem is yours, not theirs. But if they will not hear, he says, then you get some help. You get some help. This quote we'll notice here in a minute in Deuteronomy 19.15, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses is a quote from the Old Testament. That's been a long-standing principle that God has taught His people. And it's obvious. Anybody with any experience with interaction and trying to resolve problems know how miscommunication and misunderstanding is very often at the heart of these issues. And so you take somebody with you, He says, as a witness. Notice again, they, this person refuses to hear them. He says, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. One of the things I think is exceedingly important about us applying this instruction appropriately is if we're going to start, if the problem is legitimate, if there really is a sin issue going on here. then we need to start the process, but we need to be willing to finish it too. We've got to take it to the end. Or we've got to be willing to. That's not our goal. Our goal is to gain our brother as quickly as possible. But we do have to be willing. If he refuses to even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So those are the four steps. Let's do a little more examination of this. James 4 and 11, James said, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges of the law. But if you judge... The law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. So (laughs) we're going to notice later where Paul says that you're supposed to judge. Now some people are going to look at this and say, well, that's a clear contradiction in Scripture. There's no contradiction, people. When there's sinful behavior, we're called on to judge that by Scripture. Scripture defines what sinful behavior is, and we have to call it what it is. What we can't judge is motive. And that's why we have a lot of these issues, is because we feel harmed by something somebody did or said, and we assign wicked motive to that. And there can be wicked motives, I understand that. But rarely do we have enough information to judge that. And I believe that's what James is addressing here. When we feel harmed and we feel like somebody had some evil, wicked motive against us, then it justifies us to just go tell everybody how we've been harmed, because that person has got bad motives. It don't matter how truthful it is. Don't speak evil of one another, he says. That doesn't nullify what he told us to do in Matthew 18. Go and tell the person, then take your witnesses. But don't go around telling everybody else how evil your brother is. Luke 17. Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. I believe that's another barrier That we often use that keeps us from appropriately following what Jesus said to do in Matthew 18. When we feel harmed, we're not necessarily ready to forgive. You know, this is, I believe, the context here. at some, some point along, and here's where Peter asked Jesus, well, how many times do I have to forgive? If that's our attitude, we're never going to get where we need to be. In this context, I know there's another discussion, And I don't want to go down that rabbit trail. We're not talking about every situation. We're talking about when a brother sins against us. If he repents, Jesus says, after a rebuke, after a conversation, he repents, forgive him. So, if you're going to start on Matthew eighteen, you better be ready to forgive. In Proverbs 28 and verse 13, this is the most succinct description of what's supposed to happen when a Christian makes a mistake, when they sin. This is what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to cover it. You're not supposed to hide it. You're not supposed to lie about it. You're not supposed to deny it. That's not going to help you. But whoever confesses and forsakes, them will have mercy. And it's the exact thing that Jesus described in Luke 17 and verse 3. The person was rebuked They didn't cover it. They repented of it. Jesus said, give them mercy. So when we think about conflict surrounding sinful behavior, the goal is to get the person to confess it and forsake it. And that's the goal at every step from beginning to end. So when the person does that, it's supposed to be resolved, and we move on. Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, so what does that mean? That means they refuse to hear. Remember what Jesus said? You go to them privately and they refuse to hear. They're not going to confess and forsake. They're bogged down in this sin. They're not willing to acknowledge it. You who are spiritual, he says, restore such an one, in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." So I believe this is the second step of what Jesus said in Matthew 18. You get a witness. And you take the witness, one or two, he said. And the goal, again, is restoration. It's not vengeance, it's not to make me feel better, it's to restore this person, to help this person overcome a sin problem. Do we understand the problem with sin? Do we understand the warning? When people are overcome with the sin, they're not in a good place. Their soul is in peril. It's not about me. It's not about whether I've been hurt. It's about restoring the person that's overcome in this sin and that refuses to acknowledge it. There's eternal consequences. So Deuteronomy 19, One witness shall not rise up against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So there's value in having these witnesses, as I mentioned earlier. And as we think about this, we've got to learn to be objective, because... The temptation is to go find somebody that's going to take my side. We're going to go tell them what the deal is, and we're, we're going to give them our side of the story, and we're going to make sure they're on my side. That's not a good plan. Or Proverbs, I'm sorry, Proverbs 13: By pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. So if you're having a conflict and you cannot get it resolved, and you need to go to this second stage of Matthew 18, you need to choose wisely. And you need to choose wise witnesses. With the well-advised is wisdom. Proverbs eleven thirteen. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals a matter. So we need to have a faithful spirit. First of all, every one of us does. And what that means is that we recognize sometimes there are things that need to be talked about and sometimes they don't need to be talked about. Most of the time, they don't need to be talked about. We've already noticed, don't speak evil of your brother. Just because you know something, don't mean that you need to go talk about it. We need to be wise. We need to recognize that there's a time and a place to put things on the table and to be honest. But there's other times that it's have a faithful spirit. Just be quiet. And that's the kind of witness that we need to have in these situations. It's the kind of witness that we need to be. kind of person we need to be. Here's another reason I think we often avoid this process. We're afraid we're going to be in the wrong. So when you get to the point to where you think it's time for me to take some witnesses to help resolve a conflict, you need to be prepared to be in the wrong. James says here in James 1, Be my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So whichever side you're on, Wherever you are at in this process, be prepared to be wrong. And if you are in the wrong, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. So we read there in Matthew 18, verse 17, when a person refuses to hear the individual, then they refuse to hear the witnesses. He says to tell it to the church. And then he says, if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I want to remind you again of what the goal here is not to belittle anybody, not to make them feel worthless. It's restoration. To get them to confess and forsake a sin. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, I want to put a bunch of warnings in here. because you don't go to this place immediately or quickly. But there comes a time. There comes a time. The first point I want to make about taking something to the church, before the church, is that there has to be elders involved at this point. You don't have to take elders as your witness. I think it might be a good idea, but I don't believe that's a have-to. But when it gets to the stage of taking something to the church, I believe that's a have-to. And I want to show you why. Hebrews 13 and verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch for your soul. They watch for your souls. Now, I've told you before, when I read this verse, that's what I see. I'm supposed to watch for your soul. And I don't do that very well. How can I watch for your soul? He says, as those who must give account. This is a big deal, people. If we're going to take something before the church, I have to watch for the souls. Ever soul. Acts 20 and verse 28. Paul says to these Ephesian elders, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. So, we're going to take some sin problem before the church and not include the elders? It's not a good plan. We have to watch for the whole flock including the offender, the person that's overcome with a sin problem that has not been resolved. We're overseers, shepherds. Second Timothy 2 but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. We kind of already covered that, right? We shouldn't be having problems over foolish things. If we got a problem, it needs to be over a sin. Then he says this, and I don't think he's talking about elders here. I think he's talking about all of us. Servants. We're all servants. I meant just elders. I believe he's talking to every single one of us. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all people, or to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. And here's my point, before we go to the third step, we need to do everything possible. Because this is describing a person that's overcome in a sin. They're in opposition. Then he says, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will." So this is what I want us to do, everything possible to help a person come to their senses. And I'm going to argue again that you need to have elders involved to make sure that you've done and that we've done everything possible. Second Corinthians second Thessalonians chapter three, the apostle says this. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Who's the enemy? Who's the enemy? We know. It's not our brother. It's not somebody that's hurt us. It's not somebody that's sinned against us. It's not somebody that's done any number of all kinds of horrible, awful things, and they refuse to acknowledge it. It's, they are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. He is our enemy. And we don't need to forget that. Admonish him as a brother, he says. And again, I went through all of this to get to 1 Corinthians 5. Because I believe we need to do everything possible before we do 1 Corinthians 5. But there comes a time. It is actually reported, he says, that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you're puffed up. and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present. Him who has so done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my Spirit, "...with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such an one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump?" So the first thing I want to emphasize here is that sexual immorality is a problem, and it's a problem for the church. And I want you to consider some things. And I'm, I'm going to talk about Christianity in the broadest sense possible, but think about what a horrible stain that sexual immorality has been on Christianity. We got all these ch- church leaders, if you will, that are sexually abusing people. And what, what is the response to that been? To confess and forsake? No, there's cover ups. We're going to lie about it and hide it. Well, what were they doing? They wasn't even doing that. These folks at Corinth were puffed up about it. They were bragging about it. They were talking about what this guy was doing and acting like it was some great thing. It's a problem. It puts our soul in peril. We ought to mourn. It ought to grieve us. You remember what What the Bible said about Lot? He was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says it vexed. His righteous soul. We can't change. We're going to notice here in a minute. He very clearly addresses this. We, we can't change what's out there in the world. We cannot. But it should vex our righteous soul. And they weren't vexed. They weren't vexed. I want to go to verse 9 now, where he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world, or with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So it's obvious, right? We're not called to go out of the world. We're not called to live in a commune. We're not called to completely isolate ourselves from all of this wickedness. But when it's in our brethren, it's a problem that cannot be ignored. And I want to remind you, we're not going to this first we're going to do everything within our power to get a person to confess and forsake. But there comes a time. He goes on to say, I've written to you to not keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or idolater, or reviler, or drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So, the first thing he commented on in this chapter is that this particular individual was doing something particularly abhorrent, right? Right? But that's not the only kind of sexual immorality that's a problem. And it's not the only sin that's a problem. He names these other things. And I just believe it's exceedingly important that we remember to do the Matthew 18 process on these things. When we know about a person that's overcome in a sin, do we dismiss it? Do we say, oh, it's just them? It's who they are? are we vexed by it? and willing to try to help a person overcome their sin. But when it's time to do this, we need to be willing to do this. And when elders conclude that it's time to do this, we need to follow the elders. And he says to separate. No, not to eat. Remember, earlier we commented about judging. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? That, that's, that's not our job. But do you not judge those who are inside? It's how we help one another. But those who are outside God judges. Therefore, He says, put away from yourselves the evil person. I will tell you in my memory, I'm not saying I remember everything clearly, But I don't remember this being talked on very much. Man, there's a reason for that. It don't happen very often. It don't need to happen very often. I told you earlier, if we'll do the steps of Matthew 18 correctly, most problems get fixed with the first step and then the percentage goes way up from there. But when a person is overcome in a sin, and we've done all we can do to help them overcome that, we need to remember the teaching of 1 Corinthians 5. We also need to remember this. Now, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, for godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. That's the goal. That's our goal. That's my goal. That's where I want to get. That's where I want you to get. That's where I want as many people as possible to get to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. When we're sorry we got caught, when we're sorry we got chastised, when we got sorry, or we're sorry we got confronted with our sin, and we don't respond, It produces death. But observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you have proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. When they responded to what Paul told them to do, and they did it correctly, it brought godly sorrow. It produced godly sorrow and vindication for everybody, for everybody involved. And I hope we'll learn to do the same things. I want to conclude where I started with the idea that conflict will destroy us. And if we'll take what God's Word teaches us and we'll do it the way that God has taught us to do it, we'll overcome conflict, we'll be brought closer together, we'll be a better influence, people will see how we interact with one another, how we overcome these problems, and they'll be drawn. They'll be drawn, because we're reflecting God's light in the world, and I I hope we'll do that. I hope we'll do it consistently and faithfully. I want to offer the invitation at this time. We never know the hearts of those present. If there's a way that we can help you through prayer, or if we can help you in obeying the Gospel, we want one or more of either group to come as we stand stand and sing the invitation song.